to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. Hello, listeners. This is Daria Brown, and this week, developmental psychologist and clinical social worker Cindy Puccio is an ICDL clinical consultant and a longtime DIR practitioner and expert training leader. She received her PhD from Fielding Graduate University and is a faculty member of the Sarah Lawrence College Graduate Program in Child Development. Our topic this week is humor development in autism and specifically the ways in which humor emerges, motivates and expands our interactions with young children. Welcome, Cindy. Hi, thanks for having me. It's nice, nice to meet you. We sort of briefly, we've heard of each other probably for years. Yeah. We finally saw each other at the ICDL, the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning, um, Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, <laughs> DIR, <laughs> four-time <laughs> conference in November. And, um, and then we decided to do this podcast. So it's great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's fun to be here. I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it was just um, about a year ago that everything shut down and I was in New York City for the Rebecca School, the DIR Floor Time Conference, and this year it was virtual. And so it's, it, you're in New York City and I feel like it's a full circle round. <laughs> yes, it is. I'm about an hour north of the city and I miss being in the city. I used to spend a lot of time there, but I'm close enough. Yes. To the Lots city. of virtual this year in the past. So year. much virtual. So um, what, what sparked your interest? Well, first of all, I'll say that uh, this topic of humor development was your PhD topic. So yeah. what sparked this interest? So as is often the case with dissertation topics, this for me was something that I had been thinking about for so long in my own clinical practice, because I had been observing and experiencing the emergence of humor and really noticing and being curious about how it transpired and then what did it mean? So I had long been interested in this topic. And when I started to delve a little bit more deeply into it, it was um, fascinating for me to see that not only do we know that this idea, this construct of humor is so complicated, you, you, would find, you would be very hard pressed to find anyone who could agree on a definition of what humor is. But by and large, humor to me was sort of anything that created mirth or amusement, laughter, but a very complicated concept, no doubt. I was curious to, to get a better sense of how I was using this in a clinical way and specifically within the DIR model, which is, you know, mainly the model that I, that I practice that I use in my own clinical practice. So that's how all of it emerged for me. And what I quickly discovered in looking into humor was, well, big surprise, there's really not a lot of research on humor and autism. So that was kind of something that I already knew. And what did exist in the literature was disappointing in that it, these studies were typically um, designed around um, autistic children responding to a visual stimuli, something like a cartoon or watching a funny movie. And what was completely factored out of this equation was another person. So this idea of humor being humor transpiring and emerging within the context of a shared interaction 
didn't really exist. There were a few studies, I'll say very, very few. And I understood why, because it's really hard to look at all of those variables. When you put humor in the context of a shared interaction, it becomes more complex, but the complexity is really the point. So I sort of felt like, well, that's not fair to autistic children, adolescents, and adults to say that humor doesn't exist when we're measuring it this way. How could you possibly fairly measure humor comprehension and production and appreciation without incorporating that interpersonal shared interaction aspect of it? So that's sort of how it all started for me. And would you say that it, it is, or at least has been, a consensus in the literature that persons on the spectrum have trouble with humor? Is that sort of the general myth that's out there? Yes, I think that if we zoom out even more from that, people aren't really even thinking about humor in, in, in autism. And that even, that bothered me even more. And it bothered me even more after I did this study and we'll get into that later. But it was kind of, um, I guess when we think about a, a model like DIR, a play-based model, where playfulness is something that we talk about all the time and engagement and motivation and joy and all of these amazing things that we love about DIR so much, Humor is a very important component of playfulness, but it's sidelined. It's not the main course, but it's, it's the driver a lot of times of why we're doing all of these things. So why is it sidelined? Why does it get lumped in the, to this category of playfulness? And sometimes we put it into a categories of creativity or imagination, but it needs to be pulled out and it needs to be looked at more. So that was another real motivation for me. And what was so fun about that, that so to answer your question, you know, there isn't a lot out there because I don't think people are putting these two things together and they're also not using it in a clinical way, I think, to, you know, the extent that we could be using it. Um, and then the other piece about humor that's so amazing is that it's not pathologizing. Humor is a part of our personality. Everybody has a sense of humor. There's no you're funny or you're not funny. It's an individual difference. And when we can talk to parents about aspects of their children's lives that are not, you know, as you deficit related or weaknesses or vulnerabilities, but we're just talking about personality. We open up a whole other area of development that I find to be so fascinating. I couldn't agree more. And even if you just think about humor across cultures, things that Americans find funny, might be offensive in other cultures and, and vice versa. So it, even like you said, coming, zooming out and then zooming in um, to humor being an individual difference. Like when we think about what shows do we like, some people love Monty Python and other mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. just don't get it. Right. <laughs> or, or they might get it, but eh, not that funny. Other people think The Simpsons or Family Guys, hilarious. Other people are like, oh, that's so stupid. I don't like it. Um, so, I mean, humor in general is an individual difference. So why, why wouldn't we think that this concept would exist in human mm -hmm. beings who happen to be autistic as well? Right, exactly, exactly. And then you add in the piece that you can evaluate humor um, in terms of a response to something more like a TV show or a picture or something. And then you can evaluate humor 
as it develops and is co-constructed in a relationship. And that's complicated, but that's what I wanted to do. To me, that's really the meaty part of this, that when you look at it within the context of a shared interaction, which is also called interpersonal humor, then you have so many more confounding variables. Yes, but all those variables are really important and fascinating. And that's, I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that, but I understood very quickly why people weren't doing this research because um, it involves a lot of video analysis. And then it involves all of these aspects that get really messy. It is so much easier to have a child look at a funny picture and record if there's a laugh response or not simple, but that's not what I wanted to do because that's factoring out the person. And as a DIR trained clinician, that was something I really couldn't do. I didn't, I couldn't, I don't, it wouldn't have known how to do that, especially when talking about something like as a construct as humor, didn't think it was possible. So I understood why it's, there's not a lot out there, but I do, it's work that really is worth putting in and it's work that's worth doing from a research perspective. So how did you get started on this study? So I knew what that- was, I guess, what was the methodology you used? Yeah, um, because the, the construct is so complicated, I knew that the study design had to be as clean and easy and doable as it possibly could be. So I decided to do a multiple case study and I looked at, um, I looked at again, humor as it emerged within the context of a shared interaction and my case study, there were three boys. Um, they were, all of them were between the ages of four and five years old and they were purposefully selected, which means that they were asked to be in the study because I knew that they had demonstrated a capacity for humor. So that was, I reached out to other clinicians and I was kind of, so they were recruited essentially to be in the study, um, which is often the case with case study research. You know what you want to look at. You don't know what's going to emerge, but you know what you want to study. And I needed to know that these particular children had the capacity for humor comprehension and or production um, or appreciation. So that's how it started. And then the study design essentially was, um, I videotaped eight, eight floor time sessions with each of these children whom I had never met before. And I came in as a DIR floor time person. So that was sort of my role. So I stayed within this and in research is called being the participant observer, which means that you are conducting and enacting the research, you're also the researcher. So that again has its messiness, but for me, that was an important thing to do because I was studying humor within this bigger context of of DIR floor time therapy. So I had to provide that framework. Um, And so I, I was kind of doing both. So there was a lot of subjectivity to this, which is why I didn't analyze my own data. I can talk about that, but I couldn't, I'm not, it was, I couldn't judge whether, you know, I was being funny or there was funniness happening. So uh, three children, each of whom received, uh, all of whom had diagnoses of autism and each received eight floor time sessions. Um, The sessions were in their home. My idea, I I do a lot of home-based work anyway, and particularly with the study design, I felt like it was very important to um, that the children be in a, in a familiar, safe, comfortable environment. And that typically humor, humor typically flourishes most when we're in a safe setting anyway. So I wanted to at least to to have that aspect of it as opposed to an office setting. Um, And then I videotaped each session and then um, 
transcribed each session, went through each videotape and pulled out incidences of humor. And the way I coded that and defined that were, was an, an interaction that elicited a laugh response from the child. Not from me. If I laugh, that didn't count. But a, an interaction that elicited a laugh response from the child, if they smiled, if they looked like they were about to laugh, if they that didn't count either. So it had to be audible laughter. There is really no measure of, of humor or funniness. But to me, that was kind of the, the clearest and most obvious way of measuring it. Why not if they smiled? Why only if they actually laughed? Um, I think that... Um, Smile to me might've been more about enjoyment. And I was, again, back to how complicated this is to define. I, um, I felt like that would have been, um, it, it, it would have been, there, there would have been so many examples and I wouldn't have really felt like I could authentically say that this child thought this was funny. They might've been enjoying it. They might've been expressing, they might've been an affective expression of their experience or an internal state. But really, when we think about humor, we pair it with laughter. And I wanted to keep that intact for this study. And what about if you laughed first and then they responded with laughter? Did you factor that out from if they yeah. just laughed themselves without you initiating the laugh? Right. It's a really good question. So the nice thing about doing the study this way. So I looked at humor as it developed over the course of time because I saw each child for, it was happened over four months. So I was able to analyze this data a lot of different ways. And one way was to look at humor embedded in this context of this relationship with me, this we're in our fifth session or our sixth session, and how did it come about? So how did it emerge? And oftentimes it did emerge because I initiated something. For this, you know, I don't, I didn't really, um, I could go back and look at it, analyze it that way. But um, what I could see in the transcriptions and in the videotape was, so what surrounded this humorous incident? And then was the child motivated later to maybe initiate it? Did this motivate the child to engage for longer periods of time? That's something that I saw that was really exciting, that humor is this motivating variable. And if we're in My the- guess is yes. Yes, it did. <laughs> with it, with these three little guys, these three little little boys, I always want to come back to this, like, no, I can't really generalize anything in the case study research. That's not the purpose of it. But for these kids, for sure, it did. And I was able to go back and really look at how that unfolded, which was, and that was also what my hunch was, because that's what I had been seeing in my own work for 20 plus years. I just wanted to really understand this better. Yeah, amazing. So um, do you want to get into some specifics of the findings? Sure, sure. So my my real um, questions, although as with any research, you come out with more questions than answers, but I went into this and my, my primary research questions were, what types of humor emerge in playful interactions um, with children with autism? And then um, what sort of what is, what's, what's the, res, what's the response to humor when it comes, when it's, um, when it emerges in a therapeutic context, there was also a component to this that I'll speak about very briefly, which is there was a parent component. It was a small component of the study, but the parent component was really kind of a pre and post interview with the parent where I asked the parent, I can't even remember now, like less than 10 questions about 
their child in humor. The point was not to help the parent learn how to be funny. There was nothing to do that. It was really just gathering information about the parent's perceptions of their child's either appreciation, comprehension, or production of humor. That was my interest in that. And again, three mothers, not a lot, but um, they were the, the surprise of, I've never thought about this was also something that didn't really surprise me either. Also the reaction of, wow, this is kind of fun to think about. I've never thought about this. And sometimes for different reasons, one reason, which was really understandable is there's so much stuff going on. I'm focusing on this and skills and da, 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 whatever it is. And no, I've never thought about this, but actually, wow, maybe he is funny and he does laugh at this. And I do notice that I use humor when I'm trying to motivate him to put his coat on. So sparking that interest in this was really interesting. And then the, in terms of the post interview. So after I had um, come in and done all these sessions, if they were thinking about it differently. And um, again, it wasn't about teaching them how to be funny. That could be another study <laughs> or to use humor. This was really about um, getting parents' perceptions of humor. Mm -hmm. So do you have specific examples? Oh, of yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was, I was like, I digress. Oh the yeah, no, that's okay. Um, yes. So from, um, from the, 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 the study, basically there were three main themes that emerged and within the, those three themes, so kind of those umbrella themes, there were seven types of, hum of humor that emerged. So um, the three main themes that emerged, and then I'll talk about the types and give examples were affect, no surprise. That was a major theme, repetition, and then sequence. So within, um, and I'll just, I, I wanted to give the examples here. So I want to take a look at these. Um, so within the category, this bigger theme of affect, there were two subtypes, which were um, change of, what did I call it exactly? I don't remember now, hold on. Um, change of voice. So that would be changing your voice, your intonation from maybe using a gruff voice like this. So change of voice. And then the other subtype with an affect was a facial expression. And these serve as what we call, what I is called in humor development is play signals. Again, no surprise. So again, if we think back to studying humor and the emergence of humor with children with autism, without this, this is one of my main themes. It's, it, to me, it almost seems absurd. Um, it is important to mention too, that within this theme of affect, this big theme, um, negative affects and facial expressions were typically funnier. So disgust, dismay, anger, fear, um, shock, those tended to be funnier. Not super surprising when we think about children's television, right? The conflict is an important part of humor, important part of things being funny. When things are really nice and everything's going well, it's not that funny. So yuck is funnier than yummy. That's just kind of the way it goes down. So that proved to be absolutely the case in what I found as well. And again, supported what I had long thought to be the case in my own work. So facial expression and change of voice were, were part, were two types within this bigger theme of affect. Um, then there was this theme of repetition where, you know, repetition is a very interesting thing because we often speak about it in um, a derogatory way. We, we link it with rigidity and inflexibility and being stuck. 
But in humor, repetition serves a very important part. Also in typical development too, we see so much repetition again in Sesame Street. The founders of Sesame Street actually said that a big part of their success and their format was the repetition of humor. So that was a very important piece. Repetition in humor provides a sense of familiarity, predictability, um, knowing what to expect. It can, it can also enhance trust and build relationship more. You're that person who's going to be doing this with me. And I like that. This is fun. It's mutual enjoyment in that. Within this theme of repetition, subtypes were a silly song. That was a really common thing that came up a lot. And that looked something like row, row, row your go, or, you know, could be changing words to a song, for example. So some kind of a silly song, like this funniness within singing and songs. And also this theme of play, like I called it um, within repetition, play themes, meaning and this was kind of different for each child where there was something that we, a play schema, a play theme that we kind of created together that became funny to the child. So whether that was a catch or chase game, um, whether that was involving certain puppets or dolls, but there was something around a play theme for one child. It was, um, he made up this idea of one puppet drinking hilarious soda. So he would have this, there was an empty soda bottle that we used. And every time the puppet drank the soda, the puppet would laugh because it was hilarious soda. So it was making the puppet laugh kind of thing. And then the last theme, by the way, to add to the complexity, all of these themes were overlapping and all of these subtypes overlapped because as you can imagine, you can't just pull one theme out. They all build on each other and they all, are interconnected. So the last theme um, sequence with the subtypes within um, within that theme. There, so silly new word was really funny. So I use those a lot in my clinical work, although I didn't realize that until doing the study how much I use them. But things like saying rats and drat and yeesh or yikes or eek. Um, so those are called idiophones and language development, and those were very funny, consistently funny to all three kids. And then in humor, incongruity, or what's kind of thought about is the violation of an expectation. Incongruity is a big part of all types of humor. And that theme or that subtype emerged in this also. And that is an example of pretending that a box is a hat or um, for one child he loved with an alligator puppet putting his baby brother's snowsuit on the alligator puppet, just so again, incongruous behavior, something you don't expect. And then the last theme was um, what the data analyst labeled as kind of mischievous antics, which were rule-breaking behaviors. And this one was really fascinating to me. And I use a lot also in my clinical work. And that's when there's a sense of naughtiness happening. So, um, you know, the, 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 the character is not supposed to touch the oven. Don't touch the oven. And you're using anticipation and build up, and your face is communicating something funny is about to happen. And then they touch the oven and then it's no, I told you not to touch the oven. So mischievous antics and behavior was also a big subtype within the theme of sequence. That's awesome. Um, I'm giggling to myself listening because I picture all of the things that have happened with my son where these themes emerge. And because you just said mischievous antics last, I mean, almost 
everything he's ever watched on YouTube Kids involves mischievous antics, like where um, there's this segment in Thomas the Train between Thomas episodes, and he hasn't watched it for years, but there's some man, I think he's the conductor or something, and, and it's a real life, it's not cartoon, and he's playing with finding some kind of stuff or whatever, and he looks under the sink, and then he comes up and bonks his head, and my son laughed at that, like, for I don't know how many months he played over and over again and laughed his head off hysterically every time he bonked his head, um, and similar type things when, when there's the Ben and Holly's little kingdom with the elves and the fairies. And it's the funniest British show ever. Like I laugh my head off every time he's watching it. <laughs> and, you know, they just do silly things like, oh, let's make sure nobody says magic jelly because we don't want it to turn into magic jelly. And someone <laughs> says, don't say magic jelly. And then the magic jelly grows and everybody's like, ah, you know, so things exactly. like that. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. And, you know, what's interesting about that, and I could see this as I looked at, again, what preceded that humorous interaction, that mischievous antics, and then what follows. So how, how does that look embedded into a bigger interaction? And the mischievous behavior or the antics piece is so interesting because it also puts the child in that role of problem solving. Someone's not doing something the right way. What are you going to do about this? which is fascinating and that connects so you know much to our DIR goals. And then um, this kind of playful admonishing is just so funny. And there tends to be an imitative quality that comes from that too. Like, no, 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 don't do that. Um, and so you then see a shift into maybe the child's humor production. Maybe this is something they are going to not, imitate doesn't even do it justice. This is something that they're going to then initiate. That's the right word and co-create with you and build off of that. So I had a few favorite subtypes. That was one of mine. <laughs> I was hoping that that would emerge when I got the data back. Um, and it, and it did. And it's, 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 a, I think clinically what I see throughout, you know, all just not just between the small age range of four to five is that that's pretty consistently funny when someone is doing something wrong, it's, it's funny. And it inspires then that problem solving, that putting the child in the role of authority, which I think has other obvious advantages. Yeah. I mean, that's so, it's really important that you said that because I gave examples of watching cartoons. And of course that's not interpersonal interaction, but what we do in floor time to do that are all those silly examples like, okay, it's time to get dressed and put the sock on the hand or put the shirt on the foot and wait for the child to like sort of say, what are you doing? Or no, no. You know, I think early on my child wouldn't have responded and just sort of, sort of sat there. And then I, a few years later, he would have been like, no, you know? And then now he'd be like, no, it goes on my head or whatever. He would now verbalize right, and tell right, me what right. the right thing is as he's progressed, his response would have changed, I think. But um, that's that silly playfulness that we use to then say, oh, silly mama. Oh my goodness. What am I thinking? Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. And what you just said, um, I'm trying to remember now, um, you just said something. Oh yes. You just said something about putting the child in authority. And I love that you phrased it like that because next week, next, next week's podcast on affect autism is exactly about that topic 
really? with um, Amanda Kriegel and, and Mike Fields from Atlanta about how we put the child in the lead and mm-hmm. let them be the director of mm-hmm. the play interaction. So that's a topic for next week. <laughs> so it's a little teaser, but yeah, I mean, it, it's so important. Um, you know, this, we always talk about floor time being about shared joy and how that drives development mm-hmm. further. And this is a real practical example of that because when you do something silly and then your child responds in a certain way, like you said, it initiate it, it um, sparks the need for problem solving and that's getting into the fourth capacity. And so it is really a way to be fun and silly and, and enjoy an interaction with your child. That's also helping them push them up the developmental ladder. I think parents are so intimidated at first, like, how do I do floor time? What am I supposed to do? And you can just do it in everyday interactions like this, like um, your child needs, um, I don't know if utensils is a good example, but maybe they need a fork to eat with and you hand them, I don't know, a straw or something and, and you're like, silly me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, it's so, I love thinking about the intersection of humor and playfulness and creativity and imagination and all of those things. And the other thing I want to really highlight about humor specifically as being different from those things, if we're going to pull it out, is that we all know and we all feel something shift in the room when there's laughter. It's different. It's different from playful obstruction. It's different from something really shifts when there's laughter and it shifts for parents too, when they're in that experience of joy and laughter emerging. And that's, what's so different about humor. It's very hard to quantify. It's very, very hard to quantify and it can mean different things at different times, but we all like it. Um, And the other thing about humor that's so fascinating, if we think about it on this developmental trajectory, is that children, in, you know, any development period, children can appreciate a joke without understanding it. So there are a lot of examples of that where um, there might be inadvertent humor. So what humor? So for example, one of the things that we find so funny is when children say funny things and they don't mean to be funny where they misuse a word or, so those are examples of inadvertent humor and parent books are full of those baby books. We all write those things down. And there are actually a lot of books that parents um, of children with autism have written. And most, when I looked at those books and at that research, they were mainly inadvertent, unintentional humor. Also great, not a lesser form of humor at all, but children can still engage in that type of, inter- that type of experience of being funny, even when they may, they don't mean to. So that's also important. And then the other piece is that when children start to feel funny, and they are using intentional humor, that is also like, wow, it's such a self-esteem boost. It can feel so empowering. I am eliciting this response in somebody else. Someone else is laughing with me, maybe at me with me. Um, Also what makes humor very different from the other constructs that we talk about in DIR. And another reason why I think we need to highlight it more because that something in the room also shifts when that happens for that child. So the, the, the power that a child feels when they are using humor in, a, in an effective way and they can elicit a laugh response in someone else also, I think is just, is incredible. I didn't look at that quite as much, but it would, you know, it, 
after finishing what I did there, you know, there's so many ways that I would like to go with, with it. Um, whether I can or not, I don't know, but, um, and then, you know, the other piece is using humor to really help children, which they do at a very young age, they understand when someone is pretending. So there's another connection between children, um, needing humor and the affective cueing that comes with communicating something funny is, or is about to happen. And my face and my tone is telling you that. So I'm going to give you a little head start because I'm going to give you that, those affective cues to kind of get you going. Whereas if you just, if you're showing a child a picture or something funny, there's no, there are no cues. They, they're going off of nothing. So they're already at a real disadvantage if we're just looking at humor in that way. Um, but children understanding what is pretend we hear I, as a play therapist, I hear this oftentimes to parents saying, well, if they're doing this now and this mischievous behavior, does that mean they're going to go out and do this at school? And they don't. And the reason why they don't is because they understand this is play. This is funny in this context. doesn't mean I'm going to go do this in the other context, my preschool, where I know this is not allowed. That's also really fascinating to see emerge too. Yeah. You know, that was one of the eye openers for me in, in my first DIR course, I guess it's technically the second, but the first certificate course 201, when a case study showed, um, someone playing with a child and the child was putting them in jail and locking them up and, and they were just letting them. And I remember thinking, shouldn't that alarm us if the child wants to do things like um, lock you up and this and that. And of course, obviously for people that um, listen to this a lot, we know now that no, that was an educational moment for me that absolutely this stuff needs to happen in play so that it won't happen in real life. It's when you prevent it from happening in play that it pops out inappropriately elsewhere because it's in play where children are working through mm -hmm. things that are confusing to them that they see in the world. And I need to enact this out to figure it out for myself and play the sequence over and over. And, and just because I bonk someone on the head and crush them in play doesn't mean I'm going to go bonk my friends on the head and try and right. crush them in real life. Right. Exactly. And I think, you know, in, in play therapy, this is a little bit different from humor, but I'll make this comment about this. So I think it's so important is that, um, in, in play therapy, we, we talk a lot about how we're very quick to come in and solve problems and swoop in because as adults or parents, or we're not comfortable with the content or the conflict, but conflict and aggression are very important parts of play. Just like, you know, we don't watch a movie where everyone just has having a great time out to dinner. Who wants to see that? So play is the same thing. Child play is based usually around a schema where there's some conflict. Um, and oftentimes we want to put a lid on that really fast as the adults. And that doesn't then allow for the child to get to that next level, either on their own or with a little bit of scaffolding or support that trying to master what it is that they're working on and trying to work through in the play. But we come in really fast. DRR clinicians tend not to do that because we're trained not to, but in other areas, that's something that I find myself talking about a lot. It's like, you know, what we say there, wait and see, because the child is telling us what 
you know, they need to be working through right now. And they can do this. We, we don't, we don't need to come in with the, the good fairy or the fire extinguisher or the cage for the mm-hmm. shark. Let it, let it go. Let's see what happens. We could be the play partner on the receiving end saying, ow, that's so hot. It hurt me. Ow. And just sort of playing out the scenario as right, opposed to, we it. don't do that. Yes. That's not yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah. Or, well, there's, we don't do that. But then there's also, let's get, oh, let's get the fire extinguisher and put the fire out mm-hmm. or let's. So you can, even if you're embedding it in the play and you're still being playful, it's still solving the problem and we don't need to do that. Right. Right. Um, a couple of things you said, I could branch out in a few different directions, but let me um, take a shot at the first one. When you said, we all like it. We, two things about that. Um, first, yes, it relaxes us if we're laughing, if we're having fun, we're all much more relaxed. And when we're more relaxed, our genuine affect tends to come out. So mm-hmm. that for sure, that point was taken. But what about when our children are being mischievous and humorous and funny, but the parents are a little bit impatient and they want serious child at this time and their child is being silly. And, and I'm, I'm just thinking as a parent for parents listening, like, oh, when my child does this, I want to stop it because maybe grandma doesn't find that funny or maybe they're sitting in church or something. I don't know, making this up, but what about that? Um, I mean, I guess there's a time and a place for everything. Yeah. 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 So that does, that question does come up. And I think it's, it's a good point that like anything, there's a time when humor does not feel appropriate or well-timed or kind of rolling silliness. I like to call it where <laughs> parents feel like it's kind of taken on a life of its own and it's, it's getting to be a little bit too much, or maybe the parents are feeling like we're tired of this or um, so, you know, anytime that we can obviously use it and build on it and work with it in a way that we can make mutually enjoyable, that's ideal. I recognize that doesn't always happen, but I also feel like allowing kids that, you know, building in this, the irony of building in time for unstructured play, this, that's where children are working through all this stuff anyway. So sometimes that inappropriate silliness is masking another more important emotion. They're anxious about something. They're fearful about something they want out of being with grandma. So sometimes that inappropriate funniness or silliness is not really humor. It's kind of used in a different way. So I think about it a little bit differently. And I might want to think about how are we going to get underneath this a little bit more? Maybe it's a restlessness and an unsettledness and nervousness, a impulse, impulsive feeling. Usually those underlie um, more of that type of silliness that you're talking about. So I try to help parents understand that better. I think that's a great point. And yeah, wonderful response. Um, I, I really liked the point that you made about the child feeling power when they use humor to elicit a laugh response in someone else. And um, I'm wondering if that comes at a particular functional emotional developmental capacity. Um, I haven't thought about it that way. I have to go back and that would be interesting to kind of match that. Um, it was interesting, DIR and floor time was the approach that kind of housed the, 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 um, the context for this study. I didn't, and I could, it'd be another derivation or branch off of this. As you said, I could go back and 
look more at the FEDCs as they relate to what I use, which are Paul McGee's um, stages of humor in typical development. So there is, you know, there is a stage theory about how humor develops, which I won't go into, but um, I, you know, the, the idea that, you know, what age humor develops, it's, it's a little bit mixed, but we even, some parents will even say, well, I could, I could have a sense of funniness with my, with, you know, my seven month old where they're doing silly things and they're laughing and we have that interaction. So it emerges at a pretty young age. Um, but in terms of the FEDC, I don't, I don't know. I think you could probably think about um, kind of lower stage humor emerging really with, you know, with, within the first or second capacity, I wouldn't even actually link the two. I don't think, because I, I think that would, I don't want there to be a limit to what anybody wants to even try to see happen because humor can really take on this life of its own. So I don't know. I have to think more about that, about how it would pair with the FEDCs. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I, as you're speaking, I'm looking for a video that I can't find. Um, but if you saw my ICDL presentation, it was the first video I showed of my son when he was a baby laughing at the measuring tape. I do remember that. And he was laughing his head off. He thought it was hilarious pulling a measuring tape and letting it go and and just continued for, you know, whatever, two, five minutes of him laughing and laughing. So um, yeah, that's a good, a good um, example of not necessarily him initiating humor, but maybe if he then turned around Mm -hmm. at some point, later when he could walk or whatever, grabbed the measuring tape and pulled it. And, yeah. And like well, it's sort of motioning. Do let's do this together. It's a good example of the importance of repetition and humor and the surprise element, this violation of expectations. And then also there was probably a funny part about the sound, which would, mm-hmm. which would fall under that kind of idiophone. Like, so there were probably a few things that were happening for him. And that would be kind of how he was appreciating humor. That's how I would describe that. It wasn't necessarily about production. It could lead to production because maybe he's going to take that tape measure and present you with it and do the same thing. In which case we would say he's trying to be funny. He's producing humor. And, but that example is he's appreciating it. Something is making him, you know, something is eliciting that laugh response for him. Yeah, I I can think about this relating to the individual sensory profiles, because I know that's one thing that you mentioned under the sequence theme, the silly new word Mm -hmm. um, relates to sounds. And I noticed my son always like laughing his head off when he hears funny words that he like notices right away, like, yikes. I think the first time he heard that he start he kept saying that for about a year Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just funny sounds like, you know, that's why Bugs Bunny and all those silly <laughs> as they run and boing, you know, all these yeah. funny sounds. Yeah. Every time I made those kinds of sound effects as my son mm-hmm. was a toddler and, and growing up, like he loved them, laughed his head off. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it's those funny. Great examples. Yeah. Yeah. All the different things. Um, I'm trying to think of ways that my son has ever initiated humor. Um, And I think I've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast with different people in terms of cause and effect play, where he's realizing his sense of self and I can have an effect on someone. 
And I think he's trying to be funny, but it might not be appropriate. So where, you know, dad started brushing his teeth. This is many years ago now. And he didn't like it. It was uncomfortable. So he smacked dad in the face and dad's angry response made him laugh his head off. Mm -hmm. So then he started, you know, after doing it with dad for a bunch of times and getting in that power struggle, then he started doing it at school, like hitting all his friends to see, you know, what kind of response he could get. And whatever response it was, was really funny to him. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, in that case, it might be, I don't know if it's inappropriate. It's inappropriate humor from our standards for sure. Mm -hmm. But from his standard, from a developmental perspective, it was more his, um, you know, coming into a sense of self and I can have Mm -hmm. um, effect on someone else. Like um, was, we were talking with uh, Keith Lander on the podcast uh, last week where he said that the baby drops the spoon and mom picks it up and then the baby drops the spoon again. And that's, you know, in neurotypical development, that's how young children are when they start to develop that sense of power, like, oh, I can do something. Mm-hmm. And um, agency. Yeah. 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 I don't know how you would relate that to humor or not, but I, I that's the only example that's popping up for me right now. Like the latest thing my son is doing is he thinks it's hilarious to call all of his friends Mario Kart character names. So he'll say, hey, Johnny, you're Koopa Troopa. <laughs> and then Johnny's like, I'm not Koopa Troopa, I'm Johnny or whatever. So some of the friends are indifferent to it. Some of the friends are very sensitive. Mm-hmm. They don't like it, but he's persisting. It's been months now and I'm getting reports like he had to, you know, we had to talk about calling our friends names and, you know, they're working on that impulsivity control. And, you know, he's a few times he's been able to say, I feel like calling my friends names before he does it, which is amazing. But, you know, that, that's the only thing that pops out for me is him initiating humor. And that, and that, I, that example of him calling the friends character names, it's another, that's another nuance of humor where it's what I think is funny may not be what you think is funny. And then we are in this funny dance together. Then it's just me alone. And then humor can feel, maybe even hurtful to someone else. So yes, that is absolutely a part of it. That did not come up in what I was doing because I was kind of this, you know, this ideal play partner in a sense. Um, although I was very careful not to try to be funny because it wasn't about is Cindy funny and it wasn't about right. is Cindy entertaining in the same right. way that we don't do that in DIR. So these things emerge in a very naturalistic, spontaneous, organic way. And there were ways that I made sure, you know, in my study design that that stayed, stayed the course, because that would have been, you know, very confounding. And then this would be about as Cindy entertaining and being funny as opposed to these things being co-constructed and emerging. Um, But yes, oftentimes, especially within peer relationships, we see humor can be a place where kids kind of, you know, go different ways. Um, and it can cause some peer conflict. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking we're, we're going to be giving anyone listening a number of ideas for future PhD studies on humor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I did think of another way where my son initiates humor, I think based on a shared response. And I've mentioned this in past podcasts too, where, you know, a number of years ago, we were at a train store watching the model train that, the person at the store was nice enough to turn on the model train for my son. He's super excited. And they're watching the train go by. 
And I said, oh, look, it's a Hudson or a Pacific. I forget which one. And he said, no, mama, no, mama, that's a Pacific. <laughs> and so like for the next however many years and to this day, um, if if something happens where I get it wrong, he goes, <laughs> mama thought it was a Hudson, but it was a Pacific. <laughs> and so he that's initiating humor in some way because he's remembering a shared experience we had together right. that was funny like oh silly mama right. I it that's the private joke. oh my goodness yeah that's the private joke that we all love mm-hmm. let me remind you of what we've done together that's funny that feeling of a private joke with someone you know especially in peer interactions can feel so good um, and provide a sense of kind of security and remember when. And that's also based on repetition, something that we don't need to pathologize. Repetition plays a really important role in going back to those moments of that's funny and that felt good. And we're we're in this together. This is a shared, a shared funny interaction that we've had. Yeah, it you know, it it really bothers me how much a lot of autistic development is pathologized. And I guess, um, you know, there's, we need more education out there for sure. And, you know, a lot of self-advocates are really angry about it and, and they should be. Mm-hmm. And I think anger is a good force to drive positive change. Um, but, you know, there needs to be accountability on some of these journals for continuing to publish such a pathologized look Agreed. at those on the spectrum, because uh, I mean, you know, there's such a range of human um, mm-hmm. development and, and differences in the way we develop and differences in the way we communicate and differences in the way we're social or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, this study is such a good um, contribution to that field of let's stop yeah. pathologizing yeah. and saying that autistics don't have a sense of humor. We don't talk about personality enough when we talk about this. Personality is not pathologizing. Everybody has a personality and a temperament, and we also sideline that. Humor is a part of that. Humor is a very non-pathologizing, very kind of joyful way of talking to parents about development. And to that point, I really wish that humor was another part of our assessment when we are starting to meet children and families and trying to help them and asking more about humor styles and humor profiles and asking parents about humor, because from that information, we can glean a lot of, you know, a, how to build a rapport with that child, how to motivate the child, how to understand the child, maybe more development, developmentally, what they comp, how they comprehend, appreciate and produce humor is still that developmental and it's really important information. So there's that front-loading diagnostic piece that I think humor can play a really big role in. And then within the clinical work, we've discussed that a lot, um, why it's advantageous and also thinking about it as um, this, you know, as an individual difference, as we said, which is part of a profile. Um, And it happens to be a part of a profile that we use a lot in a play-based model, but we don't pull it out and we don't underline it enough. Um, And I think sometimes people misconstrue humor as being, they might be intimidated by it, or we ask a lot of parents in DIR. So, you know, we ask them to do a lot of things. A lot of parents are, you know, not as comfortable playing or they have different play styles themselves. So this isn't to add to the list of things to be 
Hello, another thing. It's, I think this really greases the wheels. And I think if it's used more and thought about in this kind of organic, spontaneous way, um, there are clinical benefits, particularly in this model. Forget other models. This is not, humor is not, it would not even be considered, it, you know, a lot of other models, it wouldn't even be, you know, it, not just not being used, it wouldn't even be considered, which I think is, is, is too bad. Um, but it certainly is a big part of our play-based model. For sure. Um, I, I can think, I can hear parents listening, asking, and so maybe this is a, a good way to end off, is to wonder how can we facilitate or promote the development of humor for those who aren't yet showing a capacity for humor interpersonally. You mentioned you selected children who you knew had a capacity for interpersonal yeah humor. So um, right off the bat, what jumps out to me is um, separating that being the funny entertainer, because mm -hmm. I'm doing funny things, look at me, aren't I funny, and your kid laughs, to maybe that's a way to start it, but then to look for more of those spontaneous, humorous interactions that sort of come out of genuine affect and um, have you thought about that? Yeah, I mean, for the parents who are thinking that um, they haven't observed this, well, we'll you know, some parents think that they just haven't thought about it. And when they think about it, they say, well, actually, wow, yeah, that came up a lot in my study. Um, and then for parents who one step beyond that would, would say, well, I actually haven't seen it at all. I think that, you know, thinking about some of the subtypes and trying them out as a way to spark some of that may be a really good way to start that if you haven't observed humor, that means you haven't observed probably more humor production, right? Your child isn't acting funny, but there's so many other layers of humor that come before that, that maybe parents aren't as mindful of. So trying out or just, you know, as a parent feels comfortable weaving in some of whatever they, and, and some parents might look at these humor subtypes and feel more or less comfortable that they may say, Oh, you know what? The silly song thing that kind of resonates with me. So, or, you know, feel less comfortable in like the mischievous antics in the symbolic realm kind of thing. So that doesn't matter. I think as naturalistic as this is this, that's kind of the starting point for parents um, and to be curious about it. And then to appreciate it and enjoy it in your child as, as another part of their personality um, and something to talk about with them and with other people and to notice and appreciate. I think that's all a, a win for parents. So I would start small with just what types resonate with you, even if you haven't observed them and what you might want to try and see what happened. And I would, I would caution two things. Number one, perhaps your child has a personality that doesn't express humor a lot because there are a lot of serious people in the world who absolutely don't really laugh at things. And if they find stuff funny, they might have an inner chuckle, but they don't outwardly laugh mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and they're no lesser human because of it. Right. Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and also just that, that interaction piece, um, you know, maybe your child doesn't find funny what you think you're mm -hmm. doing that he should laugh at or she should laugh at. Maybe it's just not funny. Maybe it's different senses of humor. And yep. this random example popped in my head 
um, my, my uh, family member got married in Europe. And so I thought, perfect, this is my chance to bring my parents on this trip around the area. So we were in some country, I think it might've been Austria. And my dad cracked a joke with the guy that we were buying some tickets from. And it was like this stoic, <laughs> stern face with zero response. And my dad looked at me and said, what's the matter with him? Jeez, blah, 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 blah. You know, and it's like, right. he probably doesn't have a sense of humor. And plus, yeah, jokes can fall flat all the time. <laughs> we, we know that. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Notice that maybe if you notice your child laughing at something that you didn't find funny, Mm-hmm. that that's okay. And they might not find what you find funny, funny. Uh, that's a pretty obvious point, but I mean, no, it is. It's, it's important to be said when we're yeah. with, with uh, starting floor time, because a lot of times, like if, if other parents are like me, it was my only child it is my only child. And I didn't have any comparison sticks. So I didn't know what is autistic behavior versus mm-hmm. neurotypical behavior, or if it's just typical toddler behavior in general. Um, so other, other parents may be thinking, oh no, he doesn't have a sense of humor when maybe a sense of humor is totally different. So we sometimes forget when we're so concerned about supporting and helping our children, we forget that some things are just the way all kids develop. Yeah. It's just different timelines, differences. Right. And <laughs> that goes back to that incredibly important point of humor is an individual difference. This, there's, this does not unfold. There are more differences and similarities in humor styles and humor profiles. Absolutely. And it's, it's a, there's a broad, broad range. Absolutely. Well, this is great. I thank you for being on the podcast and for listeners or readers um, or viewers of the YouTube video, I'm going to put a link to everything in the podcast. So um, you'll see a write-up of the description with the themes, with the subtypes, and some of the references that we made um, to, you you mentioned the stages of humor. I'll put a a link to that if people do want to look that up. So um, thank you so much, Dr. Puccio. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And make sure you tune in again next week where we will have Dr. Amanda Kriegel and licensed professional counselor Mike Fields talking about the child as the director of play. Oh, can't wait to hear that too. Take care. Have a great day. Thanks again. You too. Thank you so much. If you're a caregiver looking to implement your own floor time approach, please check the ICDL parent website at the Interdisciplinary Council on Development and Learning for a virtual floor time consultation or for the weekly parent support meetings. We aim to help you implement your program at home using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based Model, or DIR, taking into account your child's developmental level their individual differences, and using your relationship with them to help promote and support their development. Until next time, here's to affecting autism through playful interactions.